Hello, this is Nishant Malhotra from the Mill Road. Welcome to another riveting podcast. In this podcast episode, I discuss the finer points of marketing, messaging and mission statement for enabling social change and impact within the sustainable development sector. I invite Erika Mills Barnhart, founder of Klaxon Marketing and Klaxon University. Erika Mills is an internationally recognized expert on how to use words to make the world a better place. Hello Erika, great to have you on board for another informative and insightful podcast from the middle road. Hi, so great to be here. I really appreciate you inviting me on the show. Before we begin our journey, a brief introduction of Erika Mills. Erika wears many hats, that of a consultant, professor, speaker and researcher. She works with purpose-driven organizations, significantly non-profits, foundations, in amplifying their work through marketing, messaging, and fine-tuning their mission statement. A pioneer in understanding the impact of language used within the social sector, Erika Mills is a podcast host and inventor of the Wordier, an online tool to accelerate better usage of words for articulating communication for the greater good. Her 1-2-3 marketing tree and klaxon method have been used effectively by numerous mission-driven organizations with measurable impact. Erika, the first question. Let's begin your journey with your academic journey. You are a professor at Evans School of Public Policy and Governance, the University of Washington at Seattle. You have worked at multiple universities in the U.S., and with the University of British Columbia. How would you explain the transformation within the development sector, focusing on nonprofits, philanthropy, and social innovation in your more than two decades of experience? Let me ask a clarifying question if I can, because uh, I just want to make sure that we're using the term development sector in the same way. So when you say development sector, what are you referring to? So I'm, I'm referring to not only nonprofits. I'm referring to it could be um, academics. It could also be all the actors. It could be economic development when you're looking at the uh, public sector. So you know the whole. Okay. Because in the U.S., often um, the development sector refers specifically to international development. Um, but what I'm hearing you say is what we might refer to as the social impact sector, or kind of the broader landscape of agents and people and organizations who want to make an impact in the world and want to make it a better place. Is that fair? Yeah, that's precisely. I mean, you'll have Great. foundations, everything, social impact, yeah. To yeah. CSR activities within the... Thank you. You know, words are kind of my passion. So I like to, I like to clarify them <laughs> before I try answering the question, unless I answer the wrong question. I think we're at such a unique, peculiar, and exciting point in time um, with, you know, we're coming out of a pandemic. I say optimistically that we're coming out of a, you know, a global pandemic, unlike any we've seen. You know, so many things have changed. Um, and among the, 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 the darkness, because there has been a lot of darkness, a lot of trauma, a lot of things that are hard, I would say there are some there are some bright spots. And some of those for me are seeing how people, even folks who, you know, are, aren't necessarily what we would consider like in a position to be charitable. I think there's just such a yearning to help 
to contribute to making the world a better place right now because it feels so dark and they want to bring light. This is my interpretation, <laughs> not based on research per se. Um, although I will say, so, so I am an associate teaching professor at the University of Washington, where I also co-direct the Nancy Bell Evans Center on Nonprofits and Philanthropy. And last fall, uh, we released a report about the impact of COVID on nonprofits in Washington state. And even though it was specific to Washington state, they really did mirror what, what colleagues around the country um, are finding. Um, you know, and a lot of it is really startling. Nonprofits are, are hurting um, really, really deeply. And, and also what we're finding is funding is not keeping up with demand. Demand is just still far outpacing funding. However, there were some glimmers of hope from year-end fundraising. And one of the, the really bright spots was being reminded yet again, yet again, of how innovative nonprofits are. And really a trend in ways that we haven't seen before um, in partnering, partnership between um, nonprofits, between nonprofits in the private sector, between nonprofits and philanthropy, between philanthropy and the private sector, you know, all partnerships, you know, bilateral, multilateral, um, all sorts of different directions and in really truly different ways. And then as, as sort of a, a, a sub point to that, but something I really want to put on people's radar um, because it's heartening in terms of, you know, those of us who are, who are focused and dedicated to social justice is, at least in the United States, um, the development sector is predominantly uh, white and in, in leadership positions, right? And so one of the things we are seeing uh, is sort of white-led organizations turning to our colleagues of color and saying, you know best. You know best, the, the, the pandemic is disproportionately and negatively impacting the communities you're serving and you know best, how can we support? And, and that's a really dramatic shift in terms of power dynamics. I mean, maybe it's not dramatic yet. Um, maybe that's the optimist to be coming out. Um, but but it, was no, it was at least I can say as a researcher notable uh, and heartening. So, you know, it's, it's almost tough to, to look back T two decades. <clears throat> I mean, I can reference if I think about it, two, two decades ago, I was working for an organization called NPower, um, which was born out of Microsoft Philanthropies. And our, our focus was on getting technology know-how into the hands of nonprofits. Um, when I think back to that time, and I think about how, <clears throat> excuse me, nonprofits were using um, technology, you know, we were doing things like, you know, just crazy things like hooking up multiple computers to one printer. <laughs> And that was just game changing and terrifying and all sorts of things. And now, of course, yeah, we don't we don't blink an eye at that. Of course, that would be expected and you would be able to do it, you know, remotely. And so so much um, progress has been made in so many ways. And yet, uh, you know, we're, we're almost exactly in the same spot that we, that we were um, in terms of things like funding. And um, so, you know, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. Do I think we've made progress in the past two, two decades on balance, yes. And I think that there are some structural dynamics that are still in place that preclude the sector from really reaching its full potential. That's a wonderful you know, perspective. But thinking about it, Seattle is a tech-oriented hub. Don't you think it's much more cosmopolitan maybe? And the change which you're talking about, do you think sort of this has happened across board in the US or it's in coastal towns? Oh, that's, that is such a good question. Thank you. I mean, sometimes because I'm living and breathing <clears throat> Seattle-ness where we have Microsoft and Amazon and um, all, all sorts of big tech companies. Um, 
I think that we definitely, excuse me, skew towards a more tech savvy nonprofit sector. And um, I also, you know, Seattle in the grand scheme of things is, is small, right? We're still sort of backwater in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, folks on the East Coast are like, right, right, Seattle, Washington State, right, right. So uh, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Um, I, I, I would say organizations in rural areas uh, find themselves in a very different position um, than those that are in, you know, more metropolitan areas. It's a, it's a really fair point. Now, I'm really very keen to understand policy making, you know, how policy making can accelerate social innovation and philanthropy through better messaging of uh, uh, mission and vision of nonprofits. Now, the reason why I'm coming to this question is because I myself have a master's degree in public administration from Jared Ford School of Public Policy, University of Michigan. You have done so much. You, you have been a master in terms of qualitative effects, I would say, of not only using words, how you can make a social impact. So I think you are the best expert to ask how how can we focus on you know qualitative aspects of policy making for especially for nonprofits. So when you say qualitative aspects, it's like um, using you know right words to communicate. It could be uh, other aspects, but very specifically here the question would be how you can use better grammar, better linguistic. Uh, oh, okay, great. <laughs> I was because what I was th- sitting here thinking is I don't know that I'm qualified to speak broadly on qualitative aspects um, because the those could take so many shapes, but I can really talk a lot about how, about words specifically, yes, and messaging. Um, so, you know, what I find time and, and time again, and what, what keeps me so intrigued and excited about this work is that, I'm, and I'm gonna use the term nonprofits really loosely here, um, to, to also include foundations. Um, Folks who are drawn to this work are drawn to it because of the impact they can have. They are drawn to the mission. They are drawn to the vision. Um, very few people come from a marketing background. Um, super, super unusual. I mean, you, you asked in the previous question, one of the one of the developments over the past 20 years, you know, 20 years ago, the term nonprofit marketing, those two words together was like sacrilege. I mean, you almost just never heard that. And now it's like, sure, sure, nonprofit marketing, okay. But it is still the case that there are very few folks in the sector, working for the sector, even volunteering for the sector, acknowledging that much of the work gets done by volunteers. Um, They're reversed in marketing, nor do they really want to become marketers or learn about marketing. The closest we come are fundraisers. And even though those disciplines are certainly related, they are different. And so where does that land us? That lands us in a place where uh, you have these organizations that are doing the most important work on the planet, the highest impact work in so many ways. And there is a disconnect between the awesomeness of the work and the awesomeness of the marketing, and in particular, the awesomeness of the messaging. And if we're getting more granular, let's go down to to, to the words that are used. So you mentioned that I did some research. This research is now five years old. Um, It's time to refresh it. Uh, So that's on the horizon. Um, We wanted to give it enough time so so that if we were doing longitudinal analysis, we would really see trends and not just little blips. Um, But what we found and what what I would say anecdotally, I still find to be very true with the clients I work with, 
um, when they come to me is that they're doing some very specific things, um, usually unbeknownst to them, that are undermining their, their ability to use language to create impact. And those things look like using, so, so in the English language, and I want to acknowledge this is a very US Canada focused centric <laughs> take on this. Um, it could be different other places, although I speak a little bit of French and so I've done a teeny bit of, it, of looking at that. Um, and and it, there was definitely some, some mirroring um, there. But in the English language in North America, well, I'll just say it this way. Uh, organizations use 0.03% of the words available to them on average on their websites. And when you pair this with the fact that our brains as human beings love novelty, we love newness. And yet, you know, nonprofits, at least on their websites, which for most people, that's, that's an initial exposure point. Um, are so boring, so vague, so watered down, so ho-hum that, you know, potential donors, board members, supporters, funders come to them and are sort of like, hmm, right? Because we take we, we take the language as, as a reflection of the work. Um, and so there are little things that, that organizations could do, right? Simply using what I refer to as a, as, a, as a more expanded linguistic repertoire, just using more of the words that are available to you. Um, is a great way to start. And yes, you need to balance this against, um, you know, you don't want to get too flashy and you don't want to be inauthentic, right? So this isn't an exercise in like picking shiny, great words just because you're like, oh, I love the word vexing. Um, as a, for instance, um, just for the sake of using it. So bringing that intentionality of, yes, you want people to be able to easily understand what you're talking about. And you want to just drop in a few interesting words um, that they might not expect, right? Because what you're doing is kind of a, you know, it's a hack, it's a word hack. Um, and what it does is just perks up their brain um, automatically like, oh, that's interesting, let me learn more. So th there's a lot of that that happens. Um, and then I, I mentioned the word watered down. Um, that's important. And, and I wanna talk about why that happens because it actually comes from a really, really beautiful place. So I wanna honor the place that this comes from and then maybe offer an alternative to it. The beautiful place the watered down boring language comes from for most organizations um, is because people care so deeply about the work that they want to engage as many people as possible. And so there's a hesitancy in really like really speaking boldly and passionately to what you stand for and what you're doing and who you're serving because you're afraid of offending people, right? The, the hypothesis here is if, if we can appeal to as many people as possible, then we'll get as many people engaged. And that's just not how marketing works. I mean, one, not everyone's gonna be into what you're doing. Um, they're just really not. And so instead what happens is the people who really might be intrigued and interested in engaging with you are kind of turned off um, because it's just so boring. So those are, I would say, those are the two big ticket items that come to mind um, when I think about opportunity and, and kind of low level opportunity for organizations um, who, who wanna use words to greater effect. So that's a very, very interesting analysis. Do you feel like maybe a lot of times people don't want to sort of, you know, just take the, the easiest path around and, you know, they don't want to just go beyond the level of, of using words, which uh, maybe they need to be more diligent to do more research and come out with words. Do you think that could be also one of the reasons? 
sure is that they don't want to be diligent. I actually have, I, I can think of almost no examples of that. What I find almost every, everywhere I go, whether or not I'm consulting, coaching, speaking, whatever, is a lack of bandwidth to do it. It's not a, it's not a lack of volition. Uh, it is, you know, a, an unsureness about which words will be the quote unquote right words. Um, and also, uh, you know, nonprofits are just running on such thin margins. <laughs> um, so time is at a premium. And if it's between serving a couple more people uh, and, you know, messing with your messaging, I think, you know, that the default is going to be to serve more people, which makes total sense. And it's really hard, especially now with how much how many people and how much they're hurting. To, to convince yourself and to see like, okay, if we, can, if we can just take a little time now to more clearly, more compellingly communicate what we do, that's gonna pay dividends down the road. And it does, every time it does. Um, but there's an opportunity cost to that. And sometimes the near-term, short-term opportunity cost just feels too painful to make the, the investment of time and sometimes money um, and certainly energy. Now, based on... Uh giving USA report. Now you look at philanthropy in the US. So it hovers around 2% of the GDP. And this is spread out over decades. Now, this is based on an article, eight myths of US philanthropy uh, published in Stanford Social Innovation Review. Uh, I also understand you have, you know, I read your, art, your article also, and we'll also come to that question. But here the question is like, how, how do you think that the messaging could increase the giving pie in, the, uh, in, in, in America as a percentage of the GDP? Uh, it's looking at two percent. Do you think that could change? I love that you're asking this question. I love that you're surfacing that giving, you know, when every year when the Giving USA report comes out, people are like, and, you know, the amount of giving is up and it is up in terms of sheer dollars year over year. And here I want to pause and say that that generosity is astonishing and it's to be honored. And by the same token, when we look at those exact same numbers, as you're pointing out, as a percent of GDP, it hovers at 2%. And for the life of us in the US, we can't get past that. Um, so, you know, the researcher in me always hesitates to, to sort of posit what would get us past that, because that's like a gajillion dollar question, literally. Like if we could go from two to 3% of GDP, that is game changing for the sector. And, and we have not been able to do that. My hypothesis based on the number of organizations that I've worked with and the success that they've had in attracting resources because at least in part, because of the ability to better communicate, you know, using better words, the language, all of those things, it makes a difference. And so, I mean, this honestly, Nishant, is why I created Claxton University. It was because I, you know, as a consultant, and especially I wear multiple hats. So, you know, including being a professor at University of Washington. So I can only work with so many organizations, but everything I do for the most part <laughs> is learnable. And, you know, that price point, the consulting price point is, is out of touch for a lot of organizations. Also, well, this is a little less true now, but most of the organizations I work with are, are going to be in the United States. And, uh, you know, you're, you're in India, like there, there's just, all over the world, there are organizations that, that want to do better with this and can just by learning a couple techniques. I mean, even the Claxon method, which is so simple, right? It's, it's simply a matter of saying, what does success look like? Who do we need to engage? Who's our target audience? And then how are we going to do it? If organizations just made that switch, every single time you're talking about marketing, what does success look like? Who's our target audience? How are we going to reach them? Just that game changer for organizations that are diligent about doing it. So 
that's my hypothesis, really. And that's, you know, it's why I've invested in Claxton University. It's why I invest in the Claxton method. It's why I invest in tools um, that are that are widely acceptable because I really, I live, I live for this vision that there will be a day when any organization that wants to make the world a, a, a better place is like, oh, well, of course we're going to learn how to do our messaging. And, and we know that, 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 that we can do that. Um, and that it's, and then it's within reach that it's accessible. Um, you know, we, we, we would have to try it at scale. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm certainly not willing to say that I've done it at scale, but I, I do feel confident that I've done it with enough organizations to say, if we did it at scale, I think that we could, we could have a, a pass, take a passing shot at getting past the 2% ceiling. I think uh, the Klaxon University is a very exciting idea. I did check it up and I found it to be very refreshing. Uh, and I'm sure this is going to have a huge impact, you know, as, because like not only in the US, so you could spread out to anywhere in the world and, you know, people can get the best practices, specifically in nonprofits, you know, that's going to help. Not only well, I appreciate using the term refreshing. People, um, I try to use a lot of humor and it's um, one, I just, you know, <laughs> I like laughing, so I try to infuse it wherever I can. But also, people learn better when they're smiling. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's intentional. For I, I was talking to Larry last time, and he was also speaking about how fundraising is going to be in the US. Now, do you think the? I also read a report, and I feel like presently there's not going to be much change in philanthropy and giving, mm-hmm. and specifically in the healthcare sector, it's very obvious. Like they'll be sort of raising a lot more fund. Um, you know, it, it's going to go up. Right. But do you think the dynamics of giving are going to change uh, post the COVID, post the pandemic? I want to say yes. Um, you know, the closest comp- comparison we have to what we're living through, or most recent comparison, would be the 2008 financial crisis. However, I think we can all acknowledge that what we're living through now is like nothing compared to 2008, right? So are there lessons to be learned there? Probably. Uh-huh. Did giving change after that in some ways? Um, will we see those trends again? I, I just don't know. I mean, the, what we were just talking about before is 2% of GDP is being 2% of GDP. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's nothing historically to suggest it, except that we are living in a historic moment. And so maybe this will be one of the things that, that comes out of it. It is sort of an acknowledgement of the shifts that need to happen. Um, so I want to be optimistic, but even when, even when I look at, you know, and again, my, my viewpoint is so U S centric. So I apologize for that to your listeners who have a much more international, um, perspective, uh, you know, but when, when we're looking at stimulus bills in the United States, um, you know, nonprofits have to advocate so loudly and point out like, you know, we need to be included in this. Um, we're just, we're struggling so deeply. So my answer is, I don't know. I don't know. I want to believe yes. I, you know, there's so much uh, healthy disruption happening. Um, so that's that that's that's where I'm hoping we're going to end up. Um, but history would not suggest that that that's what's going to happen. There's a lot of positive uh, disruption happening, and things could change. But still, uh, America is, I think, on the leaders. Two percent of the GDP. I think UK, America, are still uh, in terms of total amount of. Uh, I'm not looking at a percentage of the GDP, but in terms of absolute terms, I think America still leads in giving around the world. Now, you also published an article in SSIR, right? You emphasize the importance of uh, linguistic uh, codes coming in as a part of official communication for nonprofits. 
Now, as per your article, research has shown that the words that are used less often make a much more measurable impact in the audience. Like, for example, you use the word like use of verbs or betters. And, you know, I also sort of um, after you're reading your book, I realized it and I've made it now as a policy that I'll start using words which are a bit uncommon, you know, so I've started looking up. I've made it a practice that I, oh, that's I awesome. use like betters, betters the life of people. Yeah. So uh, do elaborate your thoughts say because, you know, this is something which is very interesting, very unique. When I read that, I, I was really impressed and I thought, okay, this is something I never thought about. I ne never even thought that words could make such a huge impact. So that is something like truly out of the box. Thank you. It's funny, you know, I live and breathe it. So I'm like, well, of course you would think about verbs first. Why wouldn't you? So I mentioned in uh, a previous answer, so I don't want to necessarily go over the territory again, but you know, linguistic repertoire is like, how many words are you using? So you mentioned two other things that I think are so important and partly they're important and they get me so excited because it's so easy. Like once you see it, you're like, how did I not see it? You know? And, and by the way, most uh, adults go through, uh, European and North American adults go through about 15,000 words a day. So, you know, sort of the question that I always invite people to think about is like, what's the, you know, what can we co-opt to increase our impact? Like how many of those words can we co-opt? And if we're going through 15,000 words a day, how can we make the best use of them? Right. So, so it's not like more words. In fact, oftentimes it's less words. A lot of the work I do with organizations is pruning, you know, it's like you were saying too many things. <laughs> Like really, if you tell people you're everything, they remember nothing. So we want to get you down to the essence of what you're talking about. Um, and I do have an unusual approach in that. I don't want organizations to write full sentences first. What I really encourage is that you pick your verbs first. Um, so verbs are action words. Right. And so, and this is, you know, particular to English, there's some variation by different languages. So you, you should tell me how this plays out I, in other languages. Um, if you pick your verb first, it is um, so much more concrete. It's so much more tangible. And then you build the sentence around it, right? Your, 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 your verbs, your action words, especially in your mission, your vision and your purpose statements, that's really like the commitment that you're making. And that's, that, that's the flag you're waving and saying, this is how, action words, this is how we're going to make the world a better place. If you, if you sit down with a group of super, you know, ambitious in the best sense of the word, people who want to make the world a better place, and you're like, let's do your messaging. And they start writing. I, that's just, it's too much. And you end up with, you know, that's how you end up with kind of boring language. If you break it down by part of speech, you know, first verbs, then nouns, then adjectives, then do we want adverbs? On occasion, an adverb can really, you know, be fantastic. Um, what you end up with, like you take the, you, you deconstruct to reconstruct to greater effect. Um, but that's a, you know, it is a very out of the box, uncommon approach. And I, I just sort of uh, stumbled upon it in some ways because I've worked with so many organizations um, and found that when, when I facilitated them through the conversations, if, if we broke it down, um, they ended up with, with more compelling messaging, but, but there's another piece to this, which, which I think is really important to point out and just sort of pull out, um, which is, uh, for, again, for people who really care about what they're doing, they care about the words. And if you invite them into the process, they're going to have a lot of opinions. 
So if it's a free for all, <laughs> if it's a free for all, that, that undermines uh, where you're going. But when they are invited in, in, in very specific ways, right? So, so, you, so up front, you say, we want your input and the decisions are gonna be made by this much smaller group, right? Because we don't want messaging by committee. But, but we want to hear from you. We want to hear from you up front. We want to hear which three adjectives you would use to describe this organization. We want to hear the nouns you would use to describe our values. We want to hear about the verb. Invite them in there. And then I have been heard, I am a part of this. Whereas if a small committee goes away and just sort of develops the messaging and comes back and they're like, ta-da, new messaging. People are gonna be like, whoa, what? Because what, I mean, what you are literally doing is giving voice to the work. So, I mean, you gotta take, you gotta really take that to heart. You're giving voice to the work and for people who care about the work, um, that's gonna matter. It's one of those contextual things that is different um, in the development sector, I would say, as opposed to, um, you know, in the private sector. In, in spaces in the private sector that aren't as concerned with making the world a better place. So, Something just popped up, you know, popped into my head right now when you're speaking. You, you you spoke that you stumbled upon you. You talked to a lot of nonprofits. Was there any particular incident which brought you to this? Uh, you know, I would say, won't you say the sort of work which you've done was a bit of a esoteric? Was something which is usually <laughs> you know, just trying to now cope up with? You know, you asked me a lot of words, but uh, I would say. Uh, Something must have happened. Did you see what was this analysis? There was was there something behavioral aspects which you saw, which sort of said, "Okay, let's look at this particular line of thinking." I'm chuckling because you know we haven't even talked about my theories about applying universal laws of physics to language and the energetics of language. It can get real esoteric real quick. I try to like bring it back down. Um, what was happening was way back when I was mainly hired as a writer. You know, people had stuff that they needed written. And so they'd reach out because I was mainly known as a writer. Um, and what I kept seeing was, you know, was like, I could come up with some, with some good copy. You know, like I could come up with some good content. Um, and so, you know, for the most part, they, they become sort of happy with it or really happy with it. But there was always this lingering, like it wasn't theirs. So I think for me, it was partly a, a, a philosophical um you know, a principle of, of sorts that was like, these, these shouldn't be my words. I'm not the one doing the work. And especially as a consultant, I, I am not the one doing the work. My job is to help you find the words, right? So when I made that shift and sort of committed to, I'm, I'm going to help organizations find the words, then I was left with like, well, how am I going to help them do that, right? <laughs> Um, and, and that's when I got more rigorous. And, and in terms of sequencing, that's when I developed the Claxton method because it allowed me to ask a series of questions. And when we got to how are we going to do it, sometimes, you know, sometimes they would find the word, sometimes I would, you know, I started to do much more like this or this, this or this, as opposed to like, and this is what it should be. And so it was the Claxton method that came. Then it was that tool, the one, two, three marketing tree, which is like a marketing strategy tool, um, but it's really visual. It's a poster size tool. Um, so you can really interact with it. Um, and then I, and then I started noticing, you know, mainly through facilitation, this piece around one people needing to, to be involved in the process in a very specific way in order for the language to be used. Um, but, you know, the larger the organization that, you know, your odds go down, that new language is actually going to be used because as people, we crave progress and we resist change. And you're asking people to change. You're asking people to change the language that they're using, right? So this is a big ask, like this is a big ask. Um, 
and that's how I started, you know, it was sort of like this sentence or this sentence, this sentence or this sentence. And then I was like, I'm not even going to go to the census level. It needs to be a unit down from that um, in order, because then you're comparing too many things. Like if you're comparing entire sentences with a group, you have to think each of those words, you know, is a unit of measurement. So, you know, quickly it can devolve into like, let's swap this and this, and then you have a Frankenstein sentence. Um, so, th so that's how I came upon the like, we're going to deconstruct before we reconstruct. Um, and that's how we got to like comparing verbs. If you're comparing one unit, you know, it's one unit of measurement. It's one unit of measurement, it's one unit of measurement. And then we can put it back together. Um, so it was, it was just a, a series of things like that. There weren't any moments that, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think back, but it really was more iterative. It was organic, um, but it did come from that commitment of like, it's not for me to say these are your words. You know, this is your work, but I would love to help you find it. Look, I, I think change is always, uh, yeah, maybe yeah. it's iterative and it keeps going. And I, I like the, you use the word, the people resist change. And one of the, and is enabling social change and impact, you know, it's resisted, but many times it's always fantastic to have. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious about enabling. That's a very interesting verb to me. It's a very controversial verb. It's like empowering. It's a, I so how, how did I, I, I just was thinking what to sort of the, I was maybe enabling word is something which kept on coming in my mind that that is something which I would like to do, which is, I thought reflects also, it's more sustainable that it's not a short term change which you're looking at, but this change should be sustainable. And for social impact, I talk about change. How about enabling social change and impact? That's all. It was maybe came up at home. I don't know how it came in, but some of that word has stuck in and I've then started using it in almost all of my publications. Right? And I'm, yeah. I'm, so you, you think it's a good, something which is, uh, you'll say in the positive side would be? Uh, well, here's the thing with enabling. So it can be seen as passive. Okay. So, and again, this is where like, I'm just gonna offer perspective, food for thought. But, and you might've already thought about these things. Whereas something like facilitating social change and impact would be slightly more active. So I think, you know, it depends on kind of what, you know, what relationship do you want to own in terms of your role vis-a-vis -vis the social change and impact. Um, the, you know, and the, the corollary to the word empowering, is um, uh, you know there's a question mark about can an external force empower something that, that is naturally intrinsic, right? So so can a nonprofit empower youth or empower women or empower whatever? And we see the word empower a lot in the in the development sector. Um, and um, and what I what I say to organizations that are drawn to that word because again, it's their words, right? They they need to resonate with the people of the organization and their external um, supporters. A lot of my job is that, you know, I think of like, I'm a three-year-old, why, 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 <laughs> why, 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 and then we just keep asking why, and like, what do you think, what do you think? Um, so that would be my question is, you know, and I don't know enough about the work that 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 Middle Ground does, uh, sorry, Middle Road does, but um, is, you know, is it passive or is it more active? Would be a, would be a, would be a line a of questioning that would be worth pursuing. Since you have talked about the tagline, this is a good example. We can use the tagline and, you know, you also have your book published, uh, Pitch Falls, Why Bad Pitches Happen to Good People. It's a very interesting read. How do you, so there you have talked about, you know, quite a few, uh, you, you have your own structure. So take an example. Now you take the uh, Dick's uh, 
tagline or you could take any example and give us how it can be better represented as a pitch to investors uh, that's one of the you could take this example or any example whichever you would like to share with the audience well okay so let's just point a couple things out taglines are meant to be read not said okay so if you're pitching to an investor usually you would be saying that so your tagline you want it to complement your other messaging your pitch but it might not be the same thing so I just I always like to sort of point that out because sometimes people try to make their taglines do really funky things and then or, you know and, and actually oftentimes <laughs> it's not uncommon organizations will be like yeah we came up with our tagline we love it and our messaging you know and this is what this will be our elevator pitch and um and, and I, I talk about this in the book like it's pretty easy to sound like a robot um, because the way we write is oftentimes different than the way we speak. It's more formal. And the other thing that um, I was just having a conversation with a client earlier, uh, actually a couple of days ago and, and earlier today even, like do taglines need a verb? A lot of taglines don't have a verb. Um, and all of that's okay. It's, it really does matter. Like uh, you can never think about one element of your messaging in isolation, really. You wanna think about them as elements that work together. Right. And so how are they how are they going to come together in different contexts to complement each other um, and to compensate? Right. So that, that same client, actually, their their um, name is a, is an acronym that like it's not an acronym that adds up to anything. Right. It's not clever like that. Um, so they need they need a, a tagline of sorts that, that really says this is what this program does. Um, so, you know, again, just being like super duper clear. Um, about what uh, what the job of each of the messaging elements is. I, I actually sometimes have organizations write job descriptions, you know, for the tagline. So so just continuing with that example, the job description for that tagline um, is to instantly tell uh, you know a reader or listener what the name of the organization or the program means, like to give it context because there isn't any absent that. But if you have you know if you're an organization that has a really you know, a name that makes sense. Um, your tagline has a different job, right? Your tagline might, the, the job of your tagline might be to speak about the why or the what or the who or something else that isn't in the name. Um, and it's it, it actually that, that conversation for folks, um, I, I like to have that before, before we even get to the verbs um, or anything else. It's like, what's the job? What's the job? What's the job? What's the job? Um, so anyway, you know, I was just going back to, because we were talking about enabling, um, uh, you know, and looking up oftentimes, I spent a lot of time looking at synonyms, a lot of time looking at synonyms, right? Just to see if like swapping in, swapping out, you know, what, what's gonna, what's gonna feel right. And I do, you know, most of us do messaging this work for, you know, from our head. I really encourage, uh, organizations, this has to come from leadership, by the way, um, to trust their gut. And when you get to the right combination of words, you will feel it because it'll feel like relief and it'll feel like exciting. And you'll go like, yeah, that's it. And that I have seen again and again and again. And every time I say it, people are like, I'm not gonna trust my gut, it's just my gut. And what I point out is your gut actually is an accumulation of a whole bunch of data points that, that have gotten into your gut through your lived experience and that of the people that you're developing around messaging with. It is actually data. We just discount it. We discount it a lot. Uh, but when it comes to these top level messaging elements, listen to it and listen to it if it's like boop, 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 you know, like that's not the thing. Um, listen to that equally. Listen to it equally. Um, 
but that's kind of the, I mean, honestly, that's uh, some of the work that I do is not super exciting. <laughs> it's a lot of when, you know, one of our clients is like, I don't, let's look at some synonyms and is that what you really mean? And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I do. And I also look at, um, spend a lot of time in etymology. So looking at the history of a word, uh, cause that can, that can give a lot of insight into like, Oh, that's where it came from, which is just sort of, you know, interesting. Also can give you like, Oh, Hmm, that's not exactly what I mean. Um, so those are some, those are some directions that I go in and some specific things that I do when I'm thinking about taglines. What's their job? Yeah. But like, for example, you could give, give an example where people could, you know, have a much better understanding using any tagline and how I, I read your book. So basically whenever you're talking to the, you're, you're pitching to investors, it would be a lot bigger than what your tagline is. For example, yeah. anything change within this particular sector, that is what, how it would, going right yeah. oh, okay I okay i think what you're asking is where does your tagline fit into a, a bigger pitch to investors yeah, yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. oh sorry did yeah, not understand yeah. the question this is why i should try to do a better job with clarifying questions <laughs> yeah i mean your tagline really it the way it would fit in is they would see it maybe it's the materials you sent in advance it's relatively unusual um because we speak differently than we write that that you would say it unless you, unless it were the case, you know, I've seen some pitches say, you know, our tagline says it all. We, doot, 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 doot. Um, and then you're going to go usually into, you know, if it's a, it's a more formal standard deliver, what I refer to pitch um, vision, you know, this is, this is the vision of the better world that, 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 that we're seeing and that we're working towards. Right. It, so in my construct, you have, values, brand personality, um, but then you have vision, purpose, and mission. And your vision is where are you going and why? Like, wh why do we want to work towards that vision of a better world? Your purpose is why, why is our organization or our team or our whatever program, um, why are we needed? Why do we exist? Like what makes us unique in this space and uniquely able to work towards that vision? And then your mission is actually the what, who, how. Right. That's like, here's how we're doing it. That's what brings your your purpose to life. Um, so it, it's going to be some combination of those things up front. And then part of the pitching is is really knowing um, your audience. Right. So from there, it's actually it sort of challenging to give examples because it's it's so individualized. Um, I, so I can give an example. Um, there's an organization called Global Impact. Uh, they have the very wonderful URL of charity.org, by the way. Yeah, okay, great. Um, <laughs> Do you, I guess uh, another question whether somebody should have such a generic uh, URL. I think it's really good. Maybe as a brand, no, but just put charity and the, you are right there. Yeah, charity.org. I mean, so so this was actually a very interesting conversation. And, and Scott Jackson, their executive director, and I have talked about this publicly, so I feel like I can talk about it, which was, um, do they keep it or not? Because the name of the organization is Global Impact, right? So it's not charity.org. However, when 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 we looked at the research, and they and they have an international audience, and in addition to domestic, uh, they work internationally. Um, and charity is used so much more often than philanthropy. Um, so, and they had a fair amount of equity in it, right? So, so, so they made the choice to stick with it. Um, and then their tagline actually is charitable ventures for greater giving. Okay. So I think to, to your question about how this would fit in, um, 
you know, this, this tagline serves them. And I, and I've heard Scott um, use this and he, he says, you know, our tagline kind of says it all. What we're about is, is creating and cultivating charitable ventures that will buy uh, greater giving. So he, he can bring these five words to life. Um, and then, you know, and then it's a matter of customizing um, from there. So, and, uh, you know, folks can go on their website and kind of see how the, how, how the other elements play out. Uh, but I think that they're a good, a good example of how tagline can really take you far. And also, um, you know, they internally really had to, through a lot of stuff, a lot of resistance. Um, I'm sure there's still people who are like, I don't know. Um, uh, but eventually folks were like, no, that, that actually does speak very directly to what we do. Um, and the greater giving is the why. I mean, that's why they do it. So it's kind of both the what and the why. It's hard work and tagline. Okay. Now you have mentioned five steps for a good pitch, the book which, which I just discussed about. Now, would you like to share uh, any detailed example uh, from the industry on how to implement them in real life? Not steps so much as tips. tips. Right? So not everyone will do these things. So the so that's that's why I call them pitchfalls. So rather than like the Claxton method has three steps, these are three potential pitfalls. So number one would be you sound like a robot, which we've talked about and happens most often when you with the tagline. Um, the number two is you only talk about yourself. So this is an interesting one right now um, because there's a, there's a very active discussion, at least in the United States and in Canada, about who who should be the hero. Um, of your marketing if you're a nonprofit. And oftentimes we make the donor the hero. Um, and now there's really a, you know, there's a movement called community-centric fundraising, which is, it should be the people you serve. Um, but in, in no instance, <laughs> in no instance, sh should the organization be the hero, right? So, so you need to, to get yourself out of there. Um, you talk too much. Again, we, we've, I mentioned this a little bit, but um, going on and on and on and on comes from a beautiful place. And you really want to speak to the essence and, and not the everything. For sequencing, I mean, in the book I talk about se sequencing can really help with that and being clear that like you'll get there, but first we're going to talk about this and first then next we're going to talk about this. We haven't talked about jargon. That's number four. And then number five is you sound like a talking tagline, which I feel like we've covered. So what I want listeners to hear is you, you probably don't do all of, the, all of these things. I mean, you may, but most organizations will read them and be like, oh, we do two and four. And so that's where you want to focus um, your energy. I do want to talk about jargon. It happens so frequently. It, it, this isn't unique to the development sector, by the way. <laughs> we all fall prey to oh, using yeah. jargon. Um, and the, the, the issue with jargon is that unless you know for sure that your listener or reader knows what you're talking about, they will feel excluded or they risk feeling excluded. And if what you were trying to do is use language to engage people, you, you've just done the opposite. So it is worth it to be diligent uh, about trying to use as little jargon as possible. Um, especially that you only talk about yourself one, because this is, um, I mean, the, the, the workaround on this is to work the word you, Y-O-U, into your sentences, especially your initial sentences. So <clears throat> an example, uh, the before example would be, well, way back, it's, um, I teach, nope, nope. It's, we make it easy for people to get where they want to go, okay? After, we make it easy for you to get where you want to go. Including everybody, that's what it is. It's including everybody, and actually it has to do with our particular activating systems in our brains. 
we have a very hard time ignoring the term you, um, especially in this type of context. Um, so, so it's a you or your. Um, you know, just another quick example. You know, we build eco-friendly housing. We build eco-friendly homes. Again, difference between housing and homes um, for people like you and your family. So there's a whole bunch of, you know, just really, like I said, none of what I do is really rocket science. Um, it's, it, it is really sort of a, a big combination of doing a whole bunch of little things a little bit differently. And that's why I say everybody can do this. This is so doable. I hope all listeners listener and like pick one thing, you know, you're not going to like they've been pummeled with a whole bunch of ideas. Um, pick one thing. Decide like you did, you know, that you're going to focus on your verbs. Decide you're going to decide you're not going to use jargon, you know, pick one to start with. It's too much to do it all at once. Change over time. I know you're also a podcast host. So that question is obviously going to come in because podcast is a part. But I, I saw you're very uh, passionate about uh, teaching. You're very passionate about uh, Claxon University. And online education is also a huge aspect of the middle road. I mean, I myself make all the, uh, you know, this is across different topics like macroeconomics, statistics, impact. Now, uh, I looked at your site and, you know, you, you're very uh, impact focused. For example, you have, you know, given a description how much people could have increased their fundraising after, uh, you know, um, uh, attending your courses. Would like to speak, um, and this is uh, totally up to you, what do you want to speak about your venture? Because I thought I should give you a floor and, you know, get your views on um, how do you see not only online uh, teaching as evolving over a period of time, specifically of the COVID, but you could speak anything about a venture which excites you. Hmm. This is such an interesting time for teaching. I teach and um, I had created Claxton University, but I created Claxton University really assuming that people will go through it on their own. Then what we experienced starting last year <laughs> was we're still going to teach it. You're still going to have an instructor, but now we're all remote. That was pretty bumpy. I mean, I would say on balance that was bumpy and that, and that we're improving, I think a big, uh, you know, a big question mark and something where I see great potential is for folks who have, who have gone through that experience, being able to see the ways in which you could bring more of the world to your classroom um, is exciting, right? So as an example, I try to bring in a lot of guests into my classroom. Now when pre-COVID, I always wanted them to come in person. Well, so that means they're going to need to be kind of in the, in the greater Seattle area. So one of my big takeaways is like, that doesn't need to be the case anymore, right? Like I should be thinking about who is the very best person on the planet that's willing <laughs> to come and join my class. And if they're in Seattle, great. And if they're not, then can I invite them, right? And then they would join us virtually. Um, you know, and every instructor is different, right? So that that I was just talking to another to a to a colleague about that. You know, part of what, what well, part, I view part of my job as a professor as yes, teaching content, but also creating connection, uh, creating connection to ideas, creating connection to people. So if I can do a better job on the connection side of things, um, that's super exciting for me. Um, you know, it's it's just a big question mark though, like. Will we go back to all in person? Will some course, will we have realized that some courses lend themselves more naturally um, to online? And then the other thing is I, I do, I, I hope, I hope um, that we're gonna have increased access. 
you know, um, when we look at virtual events, if we're talking about the development sector nonprofits, I mean, they have had to transition to online events. And the one thing that I hear in conferences, if you think about conferences, I would say a bright spot that I'm hearing super consistently is in the end, we could serve more people. So again, Washington State, I, I sit on the host committee for our, our Washington State Nonprofit Conference, which um, our state association, Washington Nonprofits, puts on every year. So we were just having a meeting. And, you know, one of the beautiful things from last year was we're a state that has a, a, an urban sort of um, corridor, but a lot of the state is rural. And so getting to the greater Seattle area is out of reach. We were able to serve, they were able to serve so many more rural organizations who who just really want access to the information. So there are some bright spots that are coming out of it. Um, back in the classroom. <laughs> Not being able to meet my, my, my students in person has been hard. You know, they're, they're so amazing. They never cease to inspire and amaze me. I learned way more from them than they were learned from me every time. Um, so I miss the human interaction. I miss that that in person, but, but that maybe you create a, a, a deeper and broader connections. I'm excited about that. That's very interesting thing. Um, as a podcast, you're a podcast host. What are the key attributes you think are important to make uh, somebody an excellent? I, I understand you're very, and you should be very animated. You you know have a great sense of humor. So I can <laughs> clearly see that you, you would be a fantastic podcast host. But would you like to share your thoughts? Say, what do you think? Some of the things which you think are important when you are in the podcast world. I can, I can only speak for myself and, you know, sort of very subjectively what I'm drawn to in other podcast hosts. I would say really care, care about your topic, know your topic and be super curious. I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, but, I, you know, my, my podcast is marketing for good. And the whole thing is I truly think marketing can be a force for good in the world. I do. But we've kind of blown it historically with marketing in a lot of ways. Um, it has perpetuated a whole bunch of terrible things around racism and sexism and, uh, you know, body image issues and just, just a pile of yuckiness. Um, what would the world look like if that wasn't the case? What would it look like? And I can be forever curious about that. And, I, and I'm never going to quit caring about it. I, I just am not. So it, I, I don't have the stats handy. You might know them more than me. Um, about how many podcasts die after like 10 episodes and then 20 and 25. And, you know, it's a thing, like it's a thing to keep it going. So I think you, you, you definitely have to be passionate about it and also be clear about how it's supporting whatever it's meant to support. So if it's meant to support your business, act accordingly, you know, and I'll just speak candidly. When I first started, I was clear on kind of what I wanted the podcast to do. Um, and I interviewed a whole bunch of really wonderful, fascinating and my curiosity sometimes gets the best of me. So I think it sort of worked out because because um, I'm curious and they were great people, you know, but uh, you know, it's supposed to support Claxon, which does consulting and speaking. I mean, that's how, we, that's how Claxon makes money. Um, and also I wanted it to invite more people to do Claxon University. Um, about 25, 20 episodes in, I was like, this is great super interesting humans <laughs> and it's not like we were off topic or something but it wasn't necessarily the content wasn't in line with my business goals so and i don't i would say have grace a little bit like i didn't know that out of the gate you, you kind of got to do it and you have to figure out where your rhythm is 
and then also I got feedback. Um, I did a couple solo shows early on and then it was almost all interviews. And I started getting feedback from listeners that are like, I would like you to do more solo episodes. Um, and those are, you know, it's kind of me riffing, but also lecturing and it's much more content focused. Um, and so I listened to feedback, but I think caring and curiosity is what it comes down to really. But it also helps you. I mean, you, it might not be, it could be like a side business going to be promoting your work, but. Uh, it, yeah, that's fair. That's yeah. really fair, Nishant. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, you're totally right. Um, if it's a side hustle and you're just doing it for fun, that's great. I would still say, though, you better be really interested in your topic. <laughs> right? <laughs> just be real interested in your topic. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, I think I would love to see more folks in the development sector do podcasting. I think it has great potential. You know, it's like blogging 10 years ago. Um, it's more personal in a lot of ways, which is, you know, you're in people's ears. <laughs> so that's personal. And but it's maybe also going big in the US, at least like that's from whatever I know people are. That's one particular sector which people are like looking at very closely. Yeah, agreed. Uh, so, uh, okay, you told me, you already told me what excites you about the whole experience. Now, we come to the final question is like, of course, you like to share an aha moment from your life, or it could be multiple experiences you like to share, and also give a message. And also, I want to also be very sure, for example, I'm a social entrepreneur, I'm, I'm not exactly a nonprofit, so I'm a for-profit social entrepreneur. But I feel like your messaging is so important to me of a lot of social entrepreneurs who are coming in. And this is a hotly debated topic, you know, I mean, when I was in uh, four school we had a very specific class and we had this topic that whether people should be a social entrepreneur or it's like totally you have to be a non-profit and you know there's always a blurring edge or there are mm. always overlaps between the mm -hmm. two but i feel like your message is so true for all organizations it need not be just for non-profit it could be for profit it could be just for business uh, which is you know trying to make a change or trying to be in sectors which could help humanity or society now Looking at that, you share a message with everybody, whatever you want to share in. And, uh, but before that, of course, uh, your aha moments. Aha moments from my life or my professional life? It could be from anywhere. Whatever you feel uh, you could, you want to share with the audience, it's up to you. It could be from your personal life or it could be also from, before it could be from both. As a matter of fact, that, that, that's something will be very interesting how your personal life. And so it'll be good if you could get it from both of them. Let me, let me address one thing that you raised. So nonprofit, social entrepreneur, what, it's just a tech status. It's just a tech status. And so do you have to be a nonprofit? No, you don't. And in fact, so I teach an undergrad course on nonprofits, philanthropy, and social innovation. Um, and we talk a lot about, you know, leading with what's the impact that you want to have and then reverse engineering into, okay, this is, this is the container. This is the legal status <laughs> uh, and this is the business plan. This is the finance plan that, that's most going to support the impact I want to have in the world. And the lines used to be much brighter, right? There was the nonprofit sector and the public sector and the private sector. I think one of those things that's happening is those lines are blurring. And that makes a lot of people uncomfortable because we like black and white and tidy things. <laughs> That's not where we're at right now in terms of impact and social entrepreneurs. I mean, th there's just endless examples. I mean, you're a shining example. Uh, you know, Claxon, I consider Claxon to be a social enterprise, right? Like, I absolutely want to have impact. I absolutely want to make the world a better place. And we happen to be an LLC. 
Um, I mean, I, one of the challenges, so, so I also teach a, a course on marketing for good or marketing for social impact at the graduate level. And they, um, one of the early uh, challenges I give them, because most of them are kind of looking at the nonprofit space or, so I challenge them to not use the word nonprofit for a week. Um, you, right. <laughs> uh, you know, when do you miss it? How do you miss it? Because it, it's a, it's a little bit code for something, but code isn't interpreted by people in the same way. Right. And so, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but most social enterprises, um, don't say, well, I'm an LLC or, you know, I'm a C corp or I'm a whatever. That's just a tech status. Right? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? Um, so I couldn't agree more. Like everything I do, it doesn't, you know, I work with for-profit companies. I work with their CSR departments. I work with their philanthropy departments. So, you know, I work with the overall organization. Um, it's just tax status. It's about intent. It really is about intent. I mean, words are agnostic. They don't know, right? They don't know to what they are in service to. Um, so I could not agree more with that. I, I would offer, so, so I've had Claxon for almost 17 years. Um, and my daughter is 16 and a half. Uh, and I, I pretty intentionally, um, I, I knew, I, I didn't know what shape it would take, but it, when I had her, there was a turning point where I was like, I'd really like to be more available, more present. Now this has trade-offs. I, I mean, I work a lot. I was, you know, <laughs> I, I had I was working with the Gates Foundation, a project with the Gates Foundation at the time, and PATH, um, which is a global health organization based out of Seattle at Global. And, um, you know, I, I, was, I was working three days after giving birth. Do I recommend that? Absolutely not, no. But the long tail of that is I've worked from home for the most part. And so I've gotten to be available to my kids and present um, in a way that's, that's been really wonderful and sometimes very stressful <laughs> when the door is closed, the door is closed. Why are you open the door? So there's things like that. And, and I guess I mentioned it because I feel like your listeners, lots of people are drawn to this work because they want to do things differently. I think that's one example for me of doing things differently. Uh, you know, I also, I wear many hats and I've really taken to thinking of my work, which I feel just so blessed to do on every level as a portfolio, right? And my portfolio shifts um, so I'm attentive to what's in the portfolio. Sometimes that's a lot of consulting. Sometimes it's a lot of speaking. Sometimes it's a lot of teaching. Sometimes it's a lot of research, right? And, and that, you know, just like a financial or an investment portfolio, it's going to shift over time based on life, you know, life cycle, horizon, you know, what you want it to be, your values. Um, and I think entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, um, I consider nonprofit leaders to be social entrepreneurs, right? We don't fit tidily into a box. And that can be kind of stressful. And so, um, you know, and I, I had to really come to grips with this. And I, there was a lot of wrestling that happened before I got to a place of peace around, I have a really blessed portfolio of things. Um, and the shape it takes allows me to have more time with my family, um, even during COVID, you know. <laughs> um, so I just, I guess it's just an invitation that that was an aha for me. You know, you don't have to have a thing. You don't have to fit into a box. And as, and as social entrepreneurs, that's tougher. Maybe this could be the defining line in uh, maybe after a decade, in the way we are moving, the way this moment has come from Generation X and Millennials. I mean, it could be that 
there would be a mindset change and i think americans should lead it is uh, that businesses would be now doing uh, not only making a profit that's not the ultimate aim which is taught in business schools it's like doing good and making a profit i think you know what millennials and um gen z they are having none of this idea that it's only about profit they, they expect to a great extent that i guess you know I'm, i'm getting this from my students and also research right it's like they expect they are drawn to when they are in the interview they're like how are you making the world a better place how is this how does this align with the company values do my values align with your values oh no okay i'm not in this is how they you know consumers 82% of consumers would on balance prefer to purchase from a company a, a product or service that is also making the world a better place now your quality you know quality is supposed to be on par they're not going to you know necessarily subpar product just because of that um this is happening this is happening and i think i i mean i really feel like companies that don't get on board with this genuinely get on board with this genuinely not just like smearing some social good on things with like a statement or something really starting to bake it into the culture to bake it into the dna of the organization if they don't do it they will miss out on top talent 100% and I, i don't mean top talent just in terms of like intellectual like the most awesome people whatever awesome needs to look like for your company to be successful right that doesn't need to be a 4.0 <laughs> i mean no, i always feel like i can have to have a caveat cuz i'm a professor right but that's not what i'm talking about just do you want the most awesome people you better get on board that's true i'm uh, but coming back to a uh, moment which would any of anything to share and i i think this is sort of I about this so much and i'm like am i defective do i just not have a lot of aha moments in my life those were my two really was my aha moment that i wanted to construct my professional life so it complemented my personal life so i could take advantage of what turns out to be a very narrow you know it's like a teeny when you have time when your kids are at home with you and then they're gone and by the time their teenagers are gone and just was they start driving they're gone um that was an aha for me because um you know i was i was lucky my dad you know worked he was a professor and then he became a consultant back in the 80s worked from home before anybody did that <laughs> i mean that was like very unusual so i had some precedent um but i still felt pretty drawn to the traditional you know career path um you know i would offer to social entrepreneurs another aha moment which came relatively early when i was doing but maybe not really you know not as early as i would like i wish it had been out of the gate was that your nos are more as important as your yeses hmm. um i think we tend especially if you if, if you're just starting out you know don't say yes to everything it's hard to do it like the practical perspective is the stuff you say yes to if you're good at it that's what you're going to get referred to so it's not what you want to be doing you're going to get referred work that you don't want to be doing and it's pretty you know it's tough to be like i know i've done that work but it's not the work that i want to be known for you know get clear what you want to be known for um and that you know that was i you know an aha moment was realizing that cuz i it clacks has gone through iterations and prior to it was most communications group and we were like a full service small but full service marketing firm we built websites we put on events we we did and all the all the everything and then i realized the thing that 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 uh my clients valued most was the language the words that that came out of those things um and i looked around and was like well nobody's seriously obsessing about this so it made it easier to become known as the sort of messaging magician the obsessed the obsessed uh, word um woman so you know be clear on what you want to be known for and, and decline you know say no 
Don't say yes, just because you feel like you have to. And I, you know, I don't know, so that can be tough when you're starting out. Um, cash flow being what it is and all of that. I, you know, I, so I'm gonna, I would say the other aha that I feel like I really have to say as a white woman in the past year, realizing how, how much privilege I have experienced simply because of the color of my skin, humbling, very humbling. Yeah. So that's, um, I, I, I try to honor that every day and in a lot of different ways. I am able to do many of the things I am, not because I earned the privilege to do it, but because it was unearned because of the color of my skin. And I, I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of white folks and I, I'm, I'm hoping this becomes a norm. They're now getting that. And uh, once you get it, it's humbling. Actually, the podcast that Marketing for Good just put out um, was an interview with an anti-racist scholar and educator about how you can integrate anti-racism into your messaging. I don't, I, those conversations weren't happening 18 months ago, pretty much at all in, you know, in a, in a white space. Um, so that was an aha for me. And, it, uh, you know, I'm a work in progress on that for sure. I definitely get it wrong often. Um, but just to have that awareness was a big aha. Yeah. yeah thanks a lot. That was a very poignant message. Uh, uh, and this straight from the heart. You shared a lot from everywhere. We got experiences from your different parts of uh, work which you're doing. So thank you. Thank you for coming uh, to the Middle Road. Thank you for inviting me to the Middle Road. Thank you for the work you're doing. It's important. It's inspiring. And thanks for getting up so gosh darn early <laughs> to have this conversation. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's always a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.